In this weekend episode, three segments from this week's Washington Journal program on C-SPAN. First, a discussion on the U.S. hitting the debt limit and the political battle ahead to raise it. That conversation with Wall Street Journal writer John Hilsenroth. Then Gabe Klein of the Joint Office of Energy and Transportation, a new office by the bipartisan infrastructure law, discusses the administration's push for electric vehicles. Plus a discussion of the House Republicans' oversight agenda with Jeff Mordock, White House correspondent for The Washington Times. Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, ArmorAll, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on ArmorAll products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at ArmorAll.com. ArmorAll, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Now, the U.S. hitting the debt limit this past Thursday. John Hilsenrath, senior writer for The Wall Street Journal, joined us to talk about the significance and what comes next. How is it that we have a debt limit and why did we reach it? Well, so uh, the United States, the federal government has had a statutory debt limit, by which I mean it's it's written into the law, a limit on how much it may borrow uh, for more than 50 years, really. Uh, and that debt limit has been increased 77 times since around 1960. So the idea is that Congress put in place is some restraint on how much the government borrows. And what happens routinely is the government commits to spend uh, more than it's com- that, that it's capable of raising in revenue, and uh, it keeps raising the debt limit. So these, occasionally we have these showdowns where lawmakers and uh, the, the federal branch uh, have a fight about whether to raise the debt limit and whether to impose some new restraint on spending to slow the growth of uh, of debt. And that's what's happening right now. One lead per uh, sentence of a news, bo- news story this morning is the U.S. has been in debt and arguing about it for its entire existence. We've been here before. We've been here before, and I, I think that that actually might be a source of complacency. In fact, I think it was a source of complacency last year. Uh, the, the Treasury Secretary, Janet Yellen, has been very worried about another one of these showdowns over the debt limit. And because it routinely gets raised, I think there was an expectation on Wall Street and an expectation in Washington that this would just get dealt with at some point down the road. Well, now uh, Republicans are in charge of the House and uh, they, they want to have a debate, an argument, a fight, whatever you want to call about, call it over uh, w- whether there should be res- restraint on spending. Uh, the debt limit has been reached and the, the Treasury is now taking uh, these unusual measures that it occasionally takes to keep funding itself, even though it's not allowed to borrow anymore. What? And, and, and I, sh- I should say what, what's at stake here is that because the government routinely spends more than it takes in in revenue, which is to say it runs large budget deficits, 
it needs to borrow to keep funding itself. It's kind of like, you know, if you take a lot of vacations and you spend more money uh, than you bring in in income, then you run up the credit card debt. That's what the federal government does. If it doesn't keep that debt rising, then it stops the spending that it's committed to. It stops sending Social Security checks. It potentially stops uh, paying interest on the debt, which is a huge risk for Wall Street. Uh, it stops paying FAA uh, employees and the whole range of government uh, payments and responsibilities are at stake. When CNN writes a headline that every American could feel the pain of Washington's next showdown, how is it? How is it that the average American would feel the pain? Well, I, I just gave a few examples. So uh, an obvious one is Social Security. Uh, I, I should say again, every penny that the government spends is at stake because it spends more money than it brings in in revenue. We run large budget deficits. And so there is going to have to be some, if they, if they don't agree to continue borrowing, uh, then there's going to have to be some stop, uh, some slowdown in the spending. It might be Social Security. It might be interest on the debt. It might be uh, payments to the military. It's a very difficult question uh, for the Treasury to manage. Now, there's an idea uh, in some quarters that the Treasury can prioritize its payments. It can say, well, we're going to pay people their Social Security checks uh, and we're going to pay bondholders the interest on the debt, but we won't pay other things. But there's trillions of dollars at stake. It's very hard to choose, to pick and choose what goes out and what doesn't. So the, the, the task here is enormous. Really what's at, at, at stake is, you know, the, there's a question of, is this done in a manageable uh, way, uh, in an orderly way, restraint on spending, or is it done in a sudden and catastrophic way? If the debt limit situation isn't resolved, it becomes a sudden and catastrophic stoppage of spending, as opposed to doing it in some kind of orderly way. How does it get raised? Well, Congress has to agree to do it. And then this is one of the things that I think gets the goat of, of Democrats is that when Republicans have been in the White House, uh, the debt ceiling has routinely been raised uh, and Democrats have cooperated. Uh, when Democrats are in the White House, uh, Republicans have often uh, put up a fight over raising the debt limit. There were um, routine fights during the Obama years about doing it. And I think the, the Democrats take this somewhat personally because they feel that Republicans increase spending just, address, just as aggressively as, as the Democrats do. And the Democrats cooperate on raising the debt ceiling. Uh, but when it comes time for them to be in the White House, uh, the, the rules of the game, so to speak, change. But, you know, I should say there's a very dangerous game of chicken being played by both sides. The, the White House wants to bludgeon uh, Republicans uh, and label them as being irresponsible over this. And Republicans want to have, you know, a real discussion about spending restraint. The irony is that Republicans haven't restrained spending when they've been in power. But there is a real discussion to be had in Washington about what are the limits of how much the government is prepared to spend on an annual basis. What conditions do Republicans want to put in place? Well, uh, the, right, you know, this is a tricky question because um, 
the vast majority of money that the government spends is on programs that are popular and or necessary. Social Security, Medicare, this affects millions of elderly Americans, military spending, and interest on the debt. Those categories, those four categories, Social Security, Medicare, military, and interest on the debt, cover more than the majority of government spending. So Republicans tend to want to talk about discretionary spending, putting limits on discretionary spending. Uh, but that really isn't going to have a big effect on long run deficits. It's those big four categories uh, that I just mentioned that have the big effects on uh, on long run spending and long run deficits. And uh, people don't want to cut that. Uh, people don't want to touch that. A lot of Americans feel well, I paid my taxes all these years. I paid my Medicare taxes. I paid my payroll taxes. I want to keep getting my Social Security checks. Again, it comes down to whether this is done in an orderly way or a disorderly way. You know, there are long run solutions that can be put in place over a 50, 60, 7,500 year time frame. Um, but it all gets politicized in, in Washington and uh, it becomes very difficult to have uh, a, a orderly civilized debate. And we're heading right now, I fear, uh, for, for one of those games of chicken where both sides are, are pointing fingers at each other um, and it becomes a dangerous game for Wall Street. The reason Wall Street is particularly gets worried about this is that the entire financial system uh, has at its bedrock U.S. Treasury securities, uh, trillions of dollars of them that the banks hold uh, as investments, that foreign governments hold as investments, that are used as collateral uh, for all kinds of trading on Wall Street. And if the government stops paying interest on that debt, that's a default. Uh, that's like you not paying your mortgage. And that causes all kinds of disruption. Uh, I think Wall Street has had its eyes closed to this looming fight and the eyes are now opening and you're going to see some volatility in markets as a result of it. So Democrats and Republicans have to come together on this. In the meantime, what is the Treasury Department doing and how much time is left on the clock? Well, they've got about they've, they've got a few months. And, you know, this has become uh, a, a part of the uh, Washington ritual dramas. And uh, so the, the, the Treasury takes what they call extraordinary measures. Ironically, they're not so extraordinary anymore because they've been done so often over the years. One thing, for example, that they do is they use funds that are built up in federal government pension programs uh, to fund themselves. Uh, rather than borrowing through the treasury markets, they, they use these funds in federal pension programs and they cover their spending with that. And then what happens is after the debt ceiling is raised a few months down the road, they pay back those pension programs. Well, you know, those programs and, and other short-term measures you know, it's kind of like in your household, if you have a little money tucked away in an, uh, in an envelope for emergencies, you might tap it. Uh, and then if you can start borrowing again, you, you put that money back in the envelope. That's only going to run a few months. That's not a long term solution. That was John Hilsenrath, senior writer for The Wall Street Journal. Next, Gabe Klein of the Joint Office of Energy and Transportation. He joined us from the Washington Auto Show to talk about the Biden administration's push for electric vehicles. Gabe Klein, let's first talk, up, talk about when you walk around the auto show, 
What do you see and what does it tell you about the future of this industry? Yeah, thanks, Greta. Um, first of all, it's great to be here. I've been watching the show for a long time. It's an honor to be on. Um, you know, it's great to come to the auto show these days because it's a different world than it was even five years ago and definitely 10 years ago. Um, the industry is shifting dramatically, uh, moving towards electric vehicles, alt-fuel vehicles. Um, and I say alt-fuel because there are medium and heavy-duty vehicles that are moving towards hydrogen uh, um, as well. Um, but for consumers, I think it's, it's a golden time uh, to buy a new vehicle, uh, to rent a new vehicle, uh, to use car share, to use electric bikes. I mean, basically everything's shifting. And whether you live in a city uh, or a suburb or a rural area, there are now options for you, which there weren't just a few years ago. What is the future of the electronic vehicle industry? What are your predictions? Yeah. Well, I mean, look, uh, we are iterating and moving fast in this space. You know, I think the Biden administration has really stimulated some significant change. And once the market moves, the market moves. And I think whether it's um, the large, you know, OEMs, the, the, the large automakers, the battery makers, um, they're seeing the future written on the wall. And that is that the combustion engine, um, the fossil fuel burning of the last century is, is over for the most part. Um, it's just a matter of how fast we make the shift, not whether we make the shift. And I think that's a significant change from how industry felt even five years ago. I also think, you know, companies like, like Tesla, um, now Ford, um, you know, they're seeing real success in the space or even, you know, GM with the Chevy Bolt. And so once you see that type of success and growth in a particular segment like EVs, then very quickly everybody follows. What is your office and what role are you playing in this industry? Yeah. Um, well, I'm super excited to be the relatively new executive director of the Joint Office of Energy and Transportation. What's significant about this is it's the first time that the federal government in its history has started an office that spans multiple agencies. So we, you know, harness the incredible uh, resources, skills, intelligence of people within the Department of Transportation, the Department of Energy, and to some extent, the White House. I mean, they're brilliant folks in the White House uh, working on policy, and we work with all of them every day. And actually, it's growing. Uh, the decarbonization blueprint for transportation was just announced by both Secretaries Granholm and Buttigieg uh, last week, um, here actually at the DC uh, Convention Center. And, um, you know, that also expands to HUD and EPA. We work with EPA on their school bus program. We work with FTA on their transit bus program. That's $10 billion. Our, um, our first focus is $5 billion for what's called the NEVI program. It's the National Electric um, uh, Vehicle Network, basically, that, that we're building, a uh, charging network. And that's a highway-based network so that Americans feel like they don't need to have range anxiety. Uh, when they buy or use an, an, an electric vehicle. Then there's another $2.5 billion that's coming uh, in the next few weeks, and that's going to be discretionary grants for cities, Indian reservations, towns, um, and states uh, that want to build uh, either fill-in uh, charging infrastructure or uh, infrastructure within cities. What is the goal of these charging stations? What, does, what will the U.S. look like with this money? Yeah. 
So there's sort of a, a, a macro and, and micro aspect to this. You know, big picture, we're talking about reinventing the economy around renewable energy and electrification um, and alt fuels. Uh, that's, you know, huge. And there's, you know, that's an all of government approach. I would say that's an all of society uh, approach to, to do this. It takes Wall Street, um, it takes Main Street, um, and it takes uh, local, state, and federal government. Um, but in terms of specifically what we're doing as a part of that, um, we're focused on building an equitable, um, you know, easy to use, frictionless, safe, reliable network just as we have now for gasoline. Um, if you want to travel within your city, across the country, within a rural area, generally you can find gas relatively easily. We want it to be just as frictionless and easy and reliable to use electric charging. And that means being able to do it at home, and a lot of people are doing that already. Being able to do that in a multi-unit building, if you live in an apartment, for instance, um, or being able to use it on the highway or uh, arterial networks. So. Um, we have to do it all, and we have to do it quickly. Uh, there's a goal the president set of 500,000 electric vehicles. Um, I, I'm sorry, 500,000 chargers by 2030, uh, and 50% of vehicles sold being electric. And so we have a lot to do quickly, but with the climate crisis the way it is, um, we take the challenge very seriously, and we're going to execute on it. How many public charging ports are there currently in the United States? Yeah. Um, it's changing monthly. There's over 160,000 uh, uh, right now, and that includes level two chargers, which are the you know, slower chargers that people have often at their homes, or you'll see them sometimes in uh, parking uh, garages, excuse me. Um, and then also DC fast chargers, and um, those can be 60, 72 kilowatt, they can be 150, they can be up to 350 kilowatts, and charge your vehicle very quickly. And the standard that we've set for the highway charging for the NEVI program is four charging ports, 150 kilowatts every 50 miles. Um, and so, you know, that's the beginning of a network. We're seeding it. We think that the private sector will also come in. There's also many other federal and state funds uh, available to, to fill that network in uh, over the next 10 years. So these public stations will be able to accept all types of electronic vehicles? Yes, and just so people understand, um, the uh, standard in this country and in Europe is what's called CCS. And if you um, look online, Google CCS EV, you can see what a standard charging port uh, and charger look like. Um, and um, you know that is basically the um, minimum standard uh, for the U.S. charging network. Now there's um, various other standards. There's Chatmo, which is used more in Japan. Uh, Tesla has the um, North American charging standard, NACS. And so, you know, with the minimum standards that we're putting out, actually, that there's a rule coming out in the next few weeks, um, it'll be very clear to the states and the cities sort of how this needs to roll out and how we're going to make sure we have not only a national standard but interoperability and um, the ability for anybody with an electric car to be able to plug in to the system. S&P Global on EV chargers, even when home charging is taken into account to properly match forecasted sales demand, the United States will need to see the number of EV chargers quadruple between 2022 and 2025 and grow more than eightfold by 2030. 
The transition to a vehicle market dominated with electronic vehicles will take years to fully develop, but it has begun, according to this S&P Global Mobility Analyst. With the transition comes a need to evolve the public vehicle charging network, and today's charging infrastructure is insufficient to support a drastic increase in the number of EVs in operation. So why should Americans buy an electronic vehicle? Yeah. Great question. I mean, the fact is, by 2030, um, we will hopefully have over 2 million uh, charging points around the U.S. Um, we're seeding that. Um, the thing is, the use case is a little bit different. And what I mean by that is, when you buy an, an electric vehicle, and I've had a few now, um, if you have the ability to charge at home, that's probably where 90-95% of your charging will be versus going to the gas station. So. It is a little bit of a different situation. Um, I haven't been to a gas station actually in five years. Um, so we have to balance the needs of home charging, uh, public urban charging, public suburban and rural charging, and highway-based charging. However, um, with the president's commitment and the you know $7.5 billion that we're seeding this with, as well as there's over $70 billion in other programs, and the private sector ramping up with, gosh, I think it's like over $200 billion worth of, of investment you know, very recently in this space, um, we think it's going to happen quickly. We think we're going to hit that tipping point in just the next few years. The other thing, Greta, is when you drive an electric vehicle, and I would say whether that's a bike or a scooter or a car or a truck, you can't imagine going back to a combustion vehicle. It's such a different experience, up to 60% lower operating and maintenance costs. Um, it's just a different world. And so we think that the market's going to move once consumers get a taste of it. I, was, I met with a Hertz CEO yesterday, and they're buying hundreds of thousands of uh, electric vehicles right now. And then people are getting trial usage when they rent them. Once they try it, we don't think they're going to go back. That was Gabe Klein of the Joint Office of Energy and Transportation, a new office created by the bipartisan infrastructure law. Next, we talk with Jeff Mordock from The Washington Times about House Republicans' oversight agenda and various investigations into the Biden administration. Jeff, there are several parts of this. The weaponization of government, which House Republicans created a committee to look into that. Uh, You also have the Biden family business as part of these investigations, origins of the COVID pandemic, China competitiveness, and the withdrawal from Afghanistan, along with border enforcement and the treatment of the January 6th defendants. It's a lot. It is a lot. And it's a lot that they want to try to accomplish through these seven major investigations. And it seems like the the Republicans have been preparing for this since long before midterms, when it seemed clear that they were at least going to retake the House. They started sending preservation letters to different officials, Homeland Security Director Mayorkas, Attorney General Garland, asking them to preserve documents and hold on to documents because subpoenas would be coming and they would have to turn the stuff over to um, to their committees. Will we see hearings on these topics Absolutely, soon? we will. We will see a lot of hearings um, Republicans are gearing up for it. I think it looks like the first set we're going to see is probably on border security. Um, and then following after that, we'll probably start seeing Afghanistan hearings on the botched withdrawal of Afghanistan. How do you think Democrats are preparing to handle these hearings? 
I think Democrats are planning to, I think Democrats are preparing for this hearing by labeling them as partisan witch hunts. What they're going to try to make the argument for is that this is just a COVID attempt to embarrass the Biden administration, go after the Biden administration without delivering anything for the American people. And they will argue that this is just part of the Republican ideology and not really addressing any of the core issues facing America right now, like inflation, like rising gas prices, like the supply chain mess. We want to get our viewers to call in and react. Tell us your thoughts about this part of the House Republican agenda. Oversight and accountability. We showed you the list of what they plan to focus on. Democrats 202-748-8000. Republicans 202-748-8001. And Independents 202-748-8002. Text us as well. First name, city and state at 7-4-8-8-3. Let's take the first one, the weaponization of government. Who's going to oversee this? Who's going to lead it? Jim Jordan, uh, who is chairman of the Judiciary Committee, is going to uh, lead this committee. They have not put anybody on this committee yet, so it's still, and, and its its mission is vague. Um, what they have said is that they're going to go after the politicization of government, and that is a wide, wide berth. It's going to include whether or not the Biden administration weaponized the Justice Department and the FBI to target political rivals. It's going to look at the treatment, as part of that, obviously, the treatment of former President Trump when the FBI raided Mar-a-Lago. It's going to look at the government in the FBI uh, in terms of the Hunter Biden laptop. Did they suppress any evidence? Did big tech suppress any of that evidence? They're going to look at, as part of that, if federal government employees have worked to suppress free speech. There's going to be a lot. It's a wide berth. And we don't know yet who's on the committee. Democrats have already slammed this committee. They've uh, compared it to the 1950s McCarthy hearings. Um, They think it's just a way for Republicans to sort of carry out vendettas against people they don't like. That's how they've been pitching this committee. I think this is going to be the most interesting committee to watch. Uh, but right now it's still in the early state. Or, I'm sorry, excuse me, subcommittee to watch, I should yep. say. I meant yeah. to say subcommittee. Uh, most interesting subcommittee to watch, but we'll see. Um, it's still right. It's still in a very nebulous stage right now, so we'll see where this goes. Would it also include the, the Mueller investigation? Yes, but it'll, that will probably be in the later stage. What Republicans are waiting for right now is special counsel John Durham to finish his report and get it over to the Justice Department before we start seeing anything. They don't want to interfere with anything John Durham is doing. And to refresh your viewers, John Durham is the – there's so many special counsels running around yeah. right now. John Durham is the special counsel that was appointed by former Attorney General uh, William Barr to investigate the investigators, to look into how the FBI, Justice Department, and intelligence agencies operated in vetting and handling the initial stages of the Trump-Russia investigation. How long has that Durham's work been going on? That has been going on since May of 2019. Has he prosecuted anyone? Uh, he has brought several cases to, he's brought three cases into courts. One was a guilty plea for a former FBI lawyer. He ultimately admitted to doctoring evidence. He got a slap on the wrist. The other two cases, one is a former Clinton campaign attorney. The other is a Russian analyst who um, was providing information to the Steele report. They were both acquitted by a jury in what were honestly embarrassing defeats for John Durham. Do we know how much John Durham... The investigation cost the American taxpayers. It we 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 have a slight view, but he his work um, before he was special counsel. He was just working as sort of an an independent investigator of the Justice Department, and we don't so we don't have his his cost from that period. 
Um, so we don't have a complete picture of, of what that, that money, of how much has been spent on that probe. So let's talk about the Biden family businesses, mm-hmm. because this viewer, Terry in Floral City, Florida, says, all I want to know is what started this search? Was it the fact that the Republicans were going to look for papers of Hunter? Uh, is he talking about the document search? I, I, let's guess. Let's okay. say yes. Uh, what, started the, it's, what started the November 2nd document search, which the documents were found at um, a University of Pennsylvania think tank in, here in D.C., where President Biden had an office after he left the Obama. No, actually, I'm sorry. I think they're talking about, oh, going to look for papers of Hunter. I'm wondering if they're talking about the laptop. Oh, okay. Well, we can sure. take both. Okay. Uh, do you want me to start with the laptop? Sure. Or, okay. So on the laptop, what spark? Is he asking what sparked the Republicans? I think so. Yep. Okay. What, what sparked that is that we still have a lot of outstanding questions about this laptop. We still have a lot of questions about Hunter Biden's business dealings, influence peddling, and we just there's still a lot of answers out there. And how Republicans are going to try to pitch this is they're going to use the same tactic the Democrats did when they were going after Trump's taxes. How the Democrats pitch this is it's not about Trump. It's about the IRS and how the IRS is auditing public officials and how they're auditing presidents, vice presidents, particularly presidents, but other government officials. What the Republicans are going to try to do here is make a similar argument and say this is not about Hunter Biden. This is not about the Biden family business dealings. This is about the tools and mechanisms of federal law enforcement agencies to flag potential money laundering, to flag overseas deals that might be shady. That's how they're going to try to pitch this, that this is, if they happen to uncover stuff that Hunter Biden or his dad may or may not have done, they're fine, but they're really trying to pitch this as a way of bolstering law enforcement's ability to flag business deals that uh, might be suspect. That was Jeff Mordock, White House correspondent for The Washington Times. Hear more interviews from C-SPAN's Washington Journal program on our website, cspan.org, on the C-SPAN Now app, or on C-SPAN television, live every morning from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern.